We live in a culture right now that's uh, tossing the, around the term fake news a lot. Uh, the idea of promoting propaganda, of disinformation, of putting something out that is known not to be true, but to push it to the point that it's believable. In the last eight, 10 years, last decade, with the advent of social media, what used to be distributed by API, UPI, Knight Ritter, three or four main news outlets on broadcast television, uh, cable TV, step aside, social media is reaching millions in seconds. And those trends and retweets go viral and all of a sudden what's a lie becomes true. Therefore, fake news. And of course, it's only fake news if it's something against you, against what you believe or what you hold for, hold to. A fake news is nothing new. Uh, we used to call it doublespeak in a prior political climate. And in the first century, it was there and it was simply called a lie. When Jesus Christ walked the planet, there were many who were promoting fake news about what he said, what he did, what he was about. And that controversy, that antagonism, followed him his entire ministry. What people had seen and what they had heard moved them then to believe something. So what they saw of this Jesus, what they heard about this Jesus, moves them to choose to believe him or not. So we might say the news was eyewitness, I heard it, I saw it, this is what I believe about what I was exposed to. Nothing consequential has changed. In the passage in Mark 8 we want to look at this morning, Mark is dealing with a set of stories, we'll talk about this in some detail, but he's framing a bigger picture here about the disciples being slow to hear. They're not quite grasping it. And so we're going to look at these questions and how Christ interacts with his disciples, with the, some Pharisees and others. So if you have your Bible open to Mark chapter 8, let me read the first 10 verses about the crowd's ongoing hunger. Mark chapter 8, the first 10 verses. In those days when there was, again, a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from a great distance. And his disciples answered him, where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And he was asking them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground. And taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and started giving, uh, excuse me, gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve them. And they served them to the people. They also had a few small fish. And after he had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied. And they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. About 4,000 were there, and he sent them away. And immediately he entered the boat and his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. The, this crowd, this hungry crowd is following him. Uh, we're in the Decapolis area. The again tells us a separate story than the prior feeding of the 5,000. This is the four. They had nothing to eat, raises the tension. 
Now, the text tells us that Jesus says they were there three days with him with no food. This is later in the, not the spring anymore. We're not given the description of green grass and this kind of pastoral view. It's probably hot. The dry season is upon them, and they are now hungry for three days. When I was studying this uh, the past 10, 12 days, it thought jumped into my head. I wonder how I would have fared if I was hot and hungry. Would I have hung around for three days listening to this Jesus? Would his message been so compelling to me personally, to you? Would you hung around hot, thirsty, and tired? Would you have lingered long and hungry? Well, the text moves to Jesus' compassion about their physical needs, and it's not an overstatement. If they'd been there a long time without food and perhaps limited water, if they're to walk back a long distance in the heat, they might well faint. So we see the compassion of the Lord, and verse four betrays the disciples' comprehension of the crowd and who this Jesus is. Now, I don't want to be hard on the disciples. In the years of reading the Bible and studying the Bible, I've changed, I hope, hopefully have grown a little, but I've changed in being hard on the stiff-necked Israelites and the stupid disciples. We all have said things. Why don't they get it, for goodness sakes? I mean, there's a, um, and the more I study these uh, people, I'm convinced, number one, I would be just like them. I would have been with the 10 spies, probably not Joshua and Caleb. I would have grumbled in the wilderness when there was no water and it was hot. Um, I probably would be just like the disciples who were tired and impatient with the crowds. Maybe you would have been different, but I think it's incumbent on us to read this carefully and not be so cavalier with the way we think of these stupid guys. Don't they get it? Uh, It's one thing for Jesus to say something to them. It's another for us to rush to judgment because we are just as human as them. Well, as with the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples' resources are completely inadequate. They don't have enough. In fact, this time he has to tell them, what do you have again? And they come up with seven loaves. It's the same ver- uh, almost verbatim phrase in Mark chapter 6, 38 when he asked them, what do you have? And so they produce these seven loaves. There are three key words and then a phrase that I want you to note in your text. In verses six and seven, taking giving thanks, and broke. Each of these is a decisive nature. The verb form is weighty, not the boy's grammar, but the verb form is meant to call attention to the reader, the hearer, the listener, to say, whoa, he, he took them, he gave thanks, and he broke them. And each of these we see parallels to the Lord's table. We just commemorated. He gave thanks. Eucharistes is the word Luke uses. It's not a Eucharist, not a host. Some of our traditions, a host was the wafer, a Eucharist. Eucharistes just means to give thanks. Same terms used here. He takes it, he gives thanks, and he broke it. All decisive nature. And then he started giving, and that's where the miracle occurs, just like it did in chapter 6. When he starts distributing it, he kept on giving, and the miracle occurs. Verses 8 and 9, they ate and were satisfied. And they picked up the seven large baskets that were left over of the broken pieces. So 4,000 people are fed and they're sent away. And the concern of the number of people uh, comes and goes, and uh, we'll, we can debate that all day and long, but the, the, to me the caveat here is they're satisfied. They all ate and they were satisfied. We've talked in the last section about uh, the households were not counted by the number of people under a roof. They're counted by the head of the household. Matthew in Matthew uh, chapter 14 explains it, uh, men uh, beyond women and children, not counting. 
So here we have the same formula. It was 4,000 heads of households. That could be a wife and maybe two kids. Could be a wife and your mother-in-law because her husband died. It could be a family unit, which is why in chapter six we saw them break in groups of 1,500, probably villages and townships and familial relationships. And that's how they were organized. We don't have that detail here, but it doesn't matter. If Jesus could feed 4,000, he could handle 400,000. What matters is they were satisfied and there are leftovers. The detail Luke, uh, Mark gives us here is that we have seven baskets and seven loaves. That's meant to be the parallel. We had 12 before, now we have seven. Um, so it's, a, it's another icing on the cake of the story narrative. One for each disciple before, now we have one for each loaf. The word basket here is different. And not to get too detailed with words and grammar, but it is interesting and it is important. This is a larger receptacle. It's used in Acts chapter 9, 25, when they put Saul in a basket and lowered him out of a hole through a wall because they had discovered a plot to kill him and they want to sneak him out. How humiliating. Get in this basket, we'll lower you over the wall and then we'll get you away from here. So these were a larger receptacle used, uh, larger than the 12. Again, it doesn't matter. It's just illustrative of the great detail that the Lord icing on the cake. One for each disciple prior, 12 baskets. Now one for each. They only had seven loaves, more than enough. Now there is a lesson here, I think, for all of us is that when you and I follow Jesus at his word, when we follow Christ at his word, his will, there is always more than enough provision. Now this does not mean when you and I set a dream, a plan, a goal, a vision, something we feel called or, or led to do, all those words we use, that we're always going to succeed or it's always going to be blessed. The caveat is when we do what Christ has specifically instructed, commanded, when we're following him at his will, there will always be more than enough provision for you and me to accomplish. There'll be, you'll be satisfied and there'll be leftovers. And it's a good reminder in the Christian life because we can be overwhelmed. We can be discouraged. We can be faithful in our marriage and our marriage is struggling. We can be faithful raising our children. Our children break our hearts. We can be faithful filling in the blank and it just doesn't work out the way we intended. The provisions have not been used up. There's more than enough in what Christ empowers, endows, grants us. Our goal is just being faithful along the way. He did all the work. All they did was pick up the remnants to show them there was more than we needed. So it's a good reminder to me, perhaps to you. Verses 9 and 10, he sends the crowd away immediately, and they get in a boat and go to an area called Dalmanusha. Now in chapter 8, verse 11, we're going to be reintroduced to the ongoing opposition. Chapter 8, verse 11. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit. Some of your Bibles have a margin note there to himself. Sighing deeply to himself. He said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. It's a small, we call them pericopes. These stories within a bigger story are pericopes. There's a very small pericope of where the opposition comes and they're demanding proof. Now if we want to give the, the scribes and Pharisees the benefit of the doubt, they might have been appealing to Deuteronomy 13 and 18, which call for how you test a prophet to know if he indeed is of the Lord. And there's certain metrics that if they don't measure to those, they're a false prophet. 
Now, that first blush, that might be their intent, at least their pretense. That's the fake news. Show us you're a prophet. Show us you align with the law of Moses that you really are who you say you are. Now, the truth be told, the true, true news was that they had already accused him of being motivated and empowered by the father of demons, that he cast out demons by the power of demons. So their motivation has already been revealed, and Jesus will not be manipulated. He won't be uh, exploited or used. Verse 12 is unique in all the Bible, sighing deeply. It's not found anywhere else in the New Testament or Old Testament. This, This deep breath... It's an exasperation, it's an anguish, it's a disappointment, and probably laced with just a little anger toward them. I like the rendering that he sighed deeply to himself because no man knows what he's going through, but we get a little insight into his expressions. The formula, truly I say to you, it's a stern formula. Some of the King's English used to say truly, truly. In fact, some of your Bibles still use that. Here Mark uses a formula, truly I say to you. It's a declarative nature that God is saying to them, this is true news. You're coming to me with fake news. You're coming to me with propaganda. You're coming to me trying disinformation to show that I'm not a prophet. This is true. This is truly what I say to you. And he flatly rejects their demand. The word generation is a word for you Bible students, whether you've been in BSF or precept or you just love to study scripture. It's one of those words that when it comes up, we scratch our heads sometimes. Who's he talking to? Context covers a multitude of interpretational sins. Who's he speaking to in the context when he uses the word is, is the easiest way to resolve the question. And of course, he's talking to these antagonists who've come out to, to catch him. And we can see by the short order of Mark's record and how abruptly Jesus leaves the scene that he's talking to these religious zealots with their fake news. Verse 13, leaving them, uh, it's a physical movement. Mark likes the verbs of, I keep talking about the movement of the gospel of Mark. He loves the word immediately. His gospel moves at a clip that the other gospels don't move at. It's a shorter gospel. So all this movement is important in the way he crafted supernaturally the book. But I think there's a, another layer here. Not only is he leaving them, what they're rejecting him as Messiah, he's rejecting them as the religious leaders of the day. So Mark wants us to see that play, perhaps. You reject me, I reject you. You're not here to understand who I am. You're not here to see and hear and believe. You're here to lie. You're here with disinformation, and it's dangerous to the masses, so he leaves. Verse 14, the disciples fail to grasp what is going on. Mark chapter 8, verse 13, leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. And they had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not see or understand? Do you, do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves 
and the 5,000, how many baskets of full of broken pieces were picked up? Now, let's, let's put a little color on the language. He's asking them these questions. Now, they're going to answer verse 19. If you were asked that question, don't you remember when we did the last miracle, how many loaves you picked and, and uh, baskets? And you can hear almost an Eeyore. They said to him, 12. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets of broken pieces did you pick up? Seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? Now the opposition demanded proof, but the disciples failed to understand who he is. And Jesus leaves in verses 12 and 13 for you, again, Bible students, this is the end of his public ministry. He's now going, we might say, private. His primary focus is going to be equipping the 12, technically the 11, and that will go on through the rest of the Gospels. Each of the Gospel records goes from a public ministry to a private ministry, which is important to notice. He doesn't spend all of his time with hundreds of thousands of people coming out. Life change doesn't happen there. The Gospel permeates individuals. And so he's going to work with the 12, technically the 11, to equip them to make disciples of all nations, no longer uh, bringing in big crowds to his events where he's feeding them multiplying loaves. Uh, When the disciples are confronted with this, there's a staccato of questions. It's an abrupt departure. And so on the one hand, we get it going, hey, it was so quick. We didn't have time to go to a a local baker. And even in today, in antiquity, uh, bakers baked their goods and they went around into villages selling those goods. If you go to old city Jerusalem, people walking with big boards with bread they've baked just that morning selling it. Nothing's changed. Well, they didn't have time. It was such a quick encounter and opposition with the Pharisees, they're out of there. I only have one sack lunch with us. What are we going to do? They forgot to take bread. If you were hearing this story for the first time, if you were reading it, if someone was reading it or telling it to you later, you would pick up the bread, the multiplication of loaves, the leaven, nothing to eat, seven baskets, seven, all this imagery, you can't miss it. It's about food. And it's about people being hungry. I don't want them to faint along the way. So bread is a big issue. Bread is life. And of course, in John, he will say he is the bread of life. Now, he's giving them orders, and the admonition is the same as we saw in chapter 7, when he tells them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, interestingly, and the leaven of Herod. Now, in the rabbinic law and the rabbinic writings, they understood leaven. And this is nothing new. It's not a clever, concealed metaphor. Leaven simply means something very small, small has a pervasive effect. It just takes a little bit to have a huge impact. And here he's using it in a negative way. A little bit of Pharisaic leaven, corrupt teaching, affects lots of Jews. And interesting, the addition of Herod, a little bit of false teaching. Herod was a Jew, half Jew technically. He was a Jew. A little bit of false teaching from a national leader affects a lot of people. Has anything changed? Religious denominations that have gone liberal, have moved away from God's word, have changed and altered what the word clearly says, they're sending leaven and affecting lots of people in large groups. A politician who says he or she is a Christian, that leaven, when it's wrong and corrupt, affects a lot of people. Nothing's changed. Doesn't take social media and fake news to see nothing's changed. Jesus warned them, watch out, beware, an unseen amount has a great influence of permeating people negatively 
Don't be led into unbelief by powerful religious voices, no matter how big the crowd. Don't be led into unbelief and corrupt teaching by powerful politicians, no matter how popular they may be. Doesn't mean we go around fighting the world. It means we are grounded. Watch out, Jesus says, beware of false leaven. That admonition stands today. Do not be led away. Now, verse 16 is tragic or perhaps ironic that they don't understand Jesus' point. They think he's talking about the lack of physical bread and he's talking about the lack of their spiritual awareness. D. Edmund Hebert writes, the rebuke and indignation from Jesus was to their lack of faith. Quote, could they not understand by using their minds? Or to paraphrase, hello, McFly. Don't you understand? And these words come from Jesus' rebuke. Now, in verses 17 to 21, depending on your English Bible, you may have as many as eight questions that are, if you have a red letter Bible, this is all red. It's all blaring at you in this longer black text. Jesus is talking. There's a lot of vocabulary. Now, remember, in the Greek New Testament, we don't have commas, punctuation, exclamation points, quotation marks, uh, question. We don't have that. It's essentially just a run-on document that's been copied. So your English translators study grammar and syntax and forms, and they introduce that. They put the numbers there. Obviously, they were not in the Greek text. So that we can read it and find our way around it so that our English brains can understand things that we couldn't read in a run-on sentence. So some Bibles may group them a little differently. Number one, why do you discuss that you have no bread? Why are you talking about bread? Number two, do you not yet see or understand? Don't you see? Haven't you heard? Don't you comprehend? Verse th uh, the third question, do you have a hardened heart? The root of that is the word stone. Is your heart like a rock? What you're seeing and what you're hearing, it ain't getting to your heart. Are you dull? Are you obstinate? Uh, then he quotes two fragments from the Old Testament. Having eyes, you do not see. Having ears, you don't hear. You see, you don't hear. Don't you get it? And then the, the one that would kind of twist the knife. Don't you remember what happened with the 5,000? Don't you remember what happened with the 4,000? And there, of course, we get their answer. 12, 7. Yeah, we, we remember. You can almost see them looking at their sandals going, yeah, there were 12. Yeah, there were 7. Yeah, we do remember that now. I wonder if the culmination of these in verse 21 is the most stinging, do you not yet understand? Now the prior, let's just call them seven questions depending on how they occur in your Bible. The prior list of questions, I think Hebert is right. Their rebuke, their indignation. But I think verse 21, the tone changes. Do you not yet? Don't you yet? You will eventually. Don't you yet understand? The 12 have failed to understand who he is. The, the 12 have failed to understand who is this Jesus. And then the beautiful text frames us together with the story of the blind man in Mark chapter 8 beginning at verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida. And they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand he brought him out of the village, and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. 
then again, he laid his hands on his eyes and he looked intently and was restored. And he began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. The miracle of healing the deaf occurs in chapter 7, verses 31 and following. The miracle of healing the blind occurs here in chapter 8, verse 22. Again, for you students, a great assignment for your devotion this week. Take a copy of the miracle of the deaf and the miracle of the healing and put them side by side and knock yourself out with observations and correlations of what's going on with the verbs, the movement, what they say to him, what Jesus does, the parallels are supernatural. They're extraordinary. This forms what we call the Mark and Sandwich. These pericopes, these little stories within this bracket are the point of the narrative. He's healed a person who is deaf. He's now healed a person who's blind. Hang on for a minute. What goes on in the middle? Now, what we do see in common was that people wanted him to touch him. When the centurion brings his servant, uh, uh, the, the, excuse me, the daughter, when the synagogue official brings the daughter, he wants Jesus to touch her, to lay hands on her. When the deaf man is brought, they want him to touch him. And here the group says, to put your hands on him. Now, don't miss the obvious. When you go to see a physician, um, maybe you do or don't like this, I don't know, but uh, universal precautions, they might be wearing gloves. But if I go to be examined, I, my physician, look, he touches my back. He looks at things. He pokes around in my abdomen. He's examining me. If he's a distance with a clipboard or a computer, he doesn't care, right? Um, my primary physician, once in a while, he manages my medications, and I'll call him and say, hey, can you write a script for me? He goes, I need to lay hands on you, meaning I gotta see you. I need to look at you and touch you and do a clinical on you. I can't just give you this stuff over the phone. Okay, so, and he, and, you know, if he just looked at me, but I don't know about you, there's something comforting, that tactile response that he or she cares about me. Well, they see more than that. They see that there's power somehow in that touch. Isn't there power somehow in a physician's hands when he or she it does something to you? They care about me. They're wanting to help me. They're trying to diagnose what's wrong. Well, he takes the blind man by the hand and he pulls him out of the crowd into the village. And this is interesting because in each of these miracle scenes with the official's uh, daughter, with the deaf man and the blind man, Jesus gets them out of the crowd. This is not a circus. I'm not doing this like the Pharisees and scribes want me to do it to show them a sign. I'm not here performing like a seal in a ring. And I think it also gives us a little insight into the personal aspect of when Christ deals with you. It's a personal decision. You stand on your feet, not your parents' feet, not your grandparents' feet, not your spouse's feet. You have to come to terms one-on-one -on -one with him, and he pulls you aside. It also is a nice narrative. We're moving from the masses to the individuals, and then he'll focus primarily on equipping. It is the personal nature of faith. Now, the miracle is two parts. In, in the deaf sequence, of course, he spits, but here there's two stages, and there's no shortage of opinions on what happened and why Jesus does this in two parts. Even some who would hold to the idea, well, Jesus didn't quite get it right so there's two parts to the miracle. He spits in his eyes and then he has to do a second, well, I didn't get it right, let me try again kind of approach. Uh, but they miss it and the, it's on and on, doesn't matter. Listen to what jo Dr. John Grasmick writes. 
The unusual question, do you see anything, indicated it was intentional on Jesus' part. In other words, why even ask the question if the guy was going to have full sight? Grassman continues, it was fitting as a follow-up for rebuking the disciples. The man was no longer totally blind. His sight was still poor. How like the disciples? The litany of questions, Jesus has just asked them, do you not yet understand? See, not yet. They're getting there. And this two-stage miracle illustrates this beautifully. Grassmick continues, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes again. He looked then intently. His eyesight was restored. He began to see everything clearly. Now his sight is perfect, Grassmick writes. This was the outcome that the disciples could anticipate despite the difficulties in the process, despite their lack of understanding who this Jesus is. So go back to the structure. Chapter 731, the deaf man. Chapter 822, the blind man. The pericopes of the stories. We're going to feed some people. We're going to have antagonists there. And then the litany of questions. Don't you understand who I am? What have you seen? Ding, 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 ding. They just saw the blind miracle. What have you heard? They just saw a guy here. So the pericope brackets what's going on in the individual lives of the 11, 12 disciples and what they believe. Do you understand? We have to answer the question in verse 21 as an appeal and a rebuke to you and me. Do you yet understand? You see, I was asked recently, um, I'm going to Chicago here in a few days to speak, and they wanted me to talk about what's really on my heart. Those questions always kind of confound me. A lot on my heart, you know. Talk about the latest thing. What's on your heart? Anyway, um, so I was, I was setting up for this interview and, and I was going back to, okay, what's on my heart, Lord? And uh, of course, you're studying something, so obviously that's on your part and mine. And I continue to be amazed at how we as, as a people, not just us here at Fellowship, but as Christians, we continue to drift from the word and we ground our faith in experience. It's how we feel It's how we perceive, it's how things work out in life, not what Christ has said. You see, the only reason we know Christ is because what he said, what we've heard. The only reason we believe in Christ is what we've seen about him. Our experiences may or may not follow that. If our experiences do not align with scripture, which is wrong? Our experience. But because we're humans, because we're emotionally driven people, we tend to lean on the experience. We tend to lean on what we know. Well, so far in my life, these things have worked out, and that may be a trend. It may be true. But what am I concerned about? I'm concerned about we move more and more away from the text, we move into popularization, we move into cliches, we've lost a lot of the depth of our thinking biblically and theologically. We say a lot of poor things that aren't grounded in the word. And I would echo Jesus' word to you and me. Do you not yet understand? He's God. He loves you. He's your Savior. He's not mad at you. I remind myself of that often. But he wants us to understand. And he's given us his spirit to indwell us, to help us understand. He's given us God's word, God's people, God's spirit, to walk with us so we know 
where we're on track and when we get off track because the multitudes are going to be affected a little leaven by pharisaical false teaching in the world. The multitudes are going to be affected by a little leaven and political mouthpieces who are going to say things that are partly true and partly false. And a half truth is always a whole lie. He cures the deaf. He cures the blind. The parallels are unmistakable. Do you see? Do you hear? Do you understand? This past week, Cindy and I visited a, f- a friend in uh, D.C., and she has f- been fighting cancer since 1993, and we saw her, uh, and the next day she died. So we were thankful to see her. And while we were on travel, I got a phone call from a friend that I've known since 1985, and he's fought diabetes all his life. He was uh, diagnosed as a juvenile diabetic and, um, and, and uh, been through all kinds of surgeries and eye issues and whatnot, slipped in the bathtub, hit his head on the tile, and brain dead. Another cheery Michael Easley sermon. Two friends died this week. It reminds me again and again, this is not just, this isn't trending. This isn't just what's important when you walk out of this room. Do you understand him? Do you really understand him? He loves you, he forgives you, he wants to use you according to his will and there will always be ample resources to do what he wants you to do. How do we move from the horizontal of the way we've planned our life to once in a while getting a vertical pulse going, Lord, am I even, am I even close to where I need to be? It's a question I ask myself all the time. You ask yourself that question. Don't let your experiences eclipse your spiritual reality. I forgot to bring a sack lunch. That's not the point. I want you to know I'm the bread of life, he says. I want you to know I've got what you need. Beware of the false teaching. Beware of the leaven out there. Beware of yourselves. You've seen it. You've heard it. What have you seen and what have you heard? Well, if you're a believer in Christ, you've been forgiven. You know what? I don't need to see or hear much more than that. That's just me. Maybe you need more. I don't need a lot more because I know I deserved hell, period, end of discussion. And he forgave me. He gave me an incredible wife. He's blessed me immeasurably with tangible things that I like to look at and lean on, and I shouldn't. Nothing wrong with that, but my experience may change. Has the reality of my spiritual life changed? No. So my friends who suffer, my friends who live in chronic pain their experience stinks and they love Christ in ways that I marvel do you see do you hear do you yet understand him and that should be the single passion of your life and mine he's got all you and I need to live the Christian life the resources will be left over when we're dead do you believe Do you trust him? Do you follow him no matter what your experience tells you? Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you care about us. We've seen and heard a lot in our lives. We've seen and heard a lot as we read your word. The question is, do we believe it? Do we understand who you are? We thank you that you care. We thank you that you're patient beyond measure. And we thank you for your precious and powerful son. Help us to be the kind of men, the kind of women you want us to be in Christ's name, amen. God bless you, have a phenomenal week.